Hey, it's a Monday. Hi and thanks again, everybody. We're off again to Seattle. Not to Starbucks coffee, not to Hooper's chocolates, not to uh, any of that, but to a museum that is dedicated to flight. And as we'll find out, it sits next to Boeing. But it's not a Boeing museum. So let's go back into the files now for that broadcast. There are some great air museums around the country, not to mention the Air and Space Museum, part of the Smithsonian Complex in Washington. And one of the nicest air museums is just south of Seattle. Jim Lemon, a former pilot, was my guide, and I mentioned to him that the museum is so close to the Boeing factory, some people think it's a Boeing museum. And it's probably uh, one of the things that I'd like to clarify in our conversation. First of all, it's not a Boeing museum, right? Uh, it is technically called the Museum of Flight. It was the Museum of Flight, and one of the most frequently asked questions that I get here, next to where are the restrooms, <laughs> is what is that Douglas DC-3, and that's the big blue and white job hanging there in the gallery, doing in a Boeing museum? Now that's a good question, good question. Can we walk over that way and, and maybe, maybe start the tour? Uh, this is somewhat reminiscent, in my mind, on a smaller scale, to the Air and Space Museum in, in Washington, which is probably one of the, the most visited of the Smithsonian buildings, if not the most, uh, where you have the aircraft suspended from the ceiling. This is a, a, a beautiful plane. As you say, it's blue and white. It has two engines, one on each wing. It's a propeller plane. From what era is this? Well, this aircraft was de designed and built in 1935 by the Douglas Aircraft Company. So this aircraft has been around a long time. There, uh, during the war, there was uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 of these aircraft manufactured, and they flew for the Air Force under the, the name of, uh, of uh, the C-47, and uh, they were more uh, lovingly called the Goonie Birds. Now, is, th is this then essentially what we in civilian life would know as a DC-3? Absolutely, this is a DC-3. So again, back to my question is, what is a DC-3 doing in a Boeing museum? And the answer to that is simple, that it's not a Boeing museum. <laughs> it's a private, non-profit foundation, and it's funded by memberships, by donations and contributions, and the Boeing Company is perhaps the largest and most generous contributor to the museum, and indeed we're very proud to have this association with them. Now it's a simple matter when we get back to, to the mistaken identity. We're on Boeing Field, we're in the middle of a Boeing industrial complex, and we have the Red Barn, and that's that building right next door to us, that's the first building that the Boeing company used to manufacture aircraft in. So why not think it's a <laughs> Boeing museum? Absolutely. Now there's a plane down here on the floor which uh, is, you look at planes from this era, it's a biplane, two, two wing surfaces, yes, with the, uh, the diagonal uh, struts, are they struts or wires? I'm not sure what They're both. They're struts and struts wires. Struts and wires to hold the, the wings apart. Mm -hmm. And outboarded are two one on each wing engines mm -hmm. with visible 
cylinder areas. Mm -hmm. What do they call the radial engine? The radial engines. In in a circle, uh, are positioned uh, in various angles around it, and then one in the middle. Am I wrong? Is this a Ford trimotor? No, no, it's not. It's no. somebody's trimotor. Yes, it's a trimotor, and it's of the era of the twenties, the late twenties, about nineteen twenty-eight, and it's a Boeing aircraft, and it was called the Model Eighty. It was built during a time when the Ford trimotor was in its prime. The trimotor, of course, was an all-metal, uh, cantilever-winged, trimotored monoplane, single wing. Now, you would wonder why this aircraft was built, uh, as you said, with struts, wires, and two it wings. It seems to be a kind of a transition aircraft. It seems to be. But there was a, a decided reason for that, and that was to allow the aircraft to operate in and out of airfields at higher elevations in the uh, Rocky Mountain areas. Two wings, more lift? More lift, exactly. Landing slow, taking off at slow speeds in short fields. The design of the aircraft was to accommodate the mail on the, on the uh, 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 route from Chicago to San Francisco. This was the trunk line that was being flown in those days. Boeing built the aircraft recognizing where it would be flying and uh, the, designed it in a manner that would, uh, hmm. would uh, suitably do the job. Is it safe to say that in the era before the really practical all-metal plane, and I'm thinking here of the DC-3, to carry passengers economically came into being, that there was a great reliance on that subsidy for carrying the mail? Well, absolutely. First of all, carrying the mail was the first real commercial use of aviation. Prior to that, an airplane was regarded as a tool of the military or an aircraft that the, the local barnstormers would use to fly around the country and entertain people in. The male uh, use of the aircraft ushered in flying. Now how this all came about, quite frequently the pilots of the, the smaller aircraft that meant, met this trunk line aircraft on the feeder lines would be encountered would encounter a businessman or a person who had to be in Detroit from Cleveland or missed the train and they would offer the pallet a few dollars if they could get this now ride with the mail in the compartment with the mail the pilots would accept this first before you know that the the the, the uh, the owners became aware of this potential and requested that the designers and manufacturers of the aircraft build a compartment suitable for a couple of passengers. Mm. Got that? A couple of passengers. Extras, now, if you will. Uh, extras, right. So the first aircraft that came out to accommodate passengers was a, what they called a, a Boeing Model 40, and it was a biplane, and it had a little compartment in front of the male compartment for two passengers. Now when Boeing put this aircraft together, he, he built this to accommodate 12 passengers. 12 passengers. Now this was a real first. He also included in this aircraft a lavatory and he had stewardesses on board. He was the first person to include the services of a, a lady in the roles of a stewardess. So even though I tended to think of the DC-3 as really the beginning of the passenger age, no. this is a fairly large fuselage on here for the era. Absolutely, absolutely. But it couldn't have had a lift without two wings. Likely well, not. It could have had the lift, but it couldn't have negotiated the, sh the high altitude oh. fields, the short fields. 
for takeoff and landing. That's the key. That's what Boeing was looking for. The ability to get into places like Cheyenne, Wyoming at 7,000 feet altitude, elevation, excuse me. All right? And other little tiny fields. Remember, we're talking about the 20s, the late 20s, and the, the two-mile stretches of concrete that we're accustomed to using in our 747s and so on were non-existent. They were grass fields, and normally they were, they were fields that were shared by cows when they weren't used by aircraft. You know, um, a lot of people who have been perceptive in taking off have noticed that there are markers on runways. I counting down the thousands of, of feet. And I'm used to seeing when I take off from National Airport, the first one I see is barely six. We have just a little over a mile. Mm -hmm. I was in Albuquerque the other day, and we got out on the runway, and I see 13 is the first one. And I found out later that the Albuquerque Airport uh, shares the <laughs> runway. Is it Kirkland Air Kirkland Force Base? Air Force and that's Base. an old uh, strategic air command. Yes, base. it is. Yes, yeah. yes. You're right. But you're, you're absolutely right. The, the, the things we take for granted today in not only the type of aircraft and the even though some people say oh, i'll never fly again the luxury of flying oh, i mean my. to me being up there above the clouds is magic oh, yes. you were in the air force what did you do and did you always want to fly i always wanted to fly when i was just a, a youngster my goal was to fly aircraft i can remember I can remember riding my bicycle out to the local farmer's field uh, on the weekends, and there'd always be, on a nice day of course, there'd always be somebody out there in an old beat up biplane with a sign to see your town or see your farm or see your, the country from the air, and he charged whatever he could, whatever the, the traffic would bear, buck and a half or whatever and he'd stuff a couple of people into the front cockpit of the airplane and fly around for a few minutes and land. And this was probably the first ride that many, many Americans had. Uh, yeah. A ride in an airplane was a big deal. But back to your question of my desires, yes. I, uh, I accomplished what I wanted to uh, through, of course, World War II. I went into the aviation, aviation cadet program in 1942, and I've been at it ever since. I have an aging uncle who flew over the hump into Burma, oh, yes. and I don't know whether it was in the uh, what we call the DC-3, but I remember him one time, and he still doesn't like to talk much about it, but he said that they, uh, they were almost wanting to hire the natives to chop the top off the mountains, because there were times, he said, if they ever got a downdraft, and you could see the carcasses of the guys who didn't make it. Oh, yeah, and he's right. It was the, the main aircraft flying the hump. That was uh, the uh, the Burma China Burma flights, and and they were going over the uh, the tallest mountains in the world. Was the C uh, forty seven, this DC three that you see right behind us here, and the old uh, uh, Curtis. Uh, uh, C-46, it was called. It was a twin-engine aircraft that resembled the DC-3, only it was larger. And it wasn't quite as a reliable aircraft as the uh, DC-3, and it was a little more expensive to operate, and therefore it didn't enjoy the commercial uh, uh, results that this guy did when... Uh, after the end of the war. Pardon my love affair with this plane, the, this, this DC-3. Sure. I could almost spend the whole show on it. You could. We're standing outside the Museum of Flight, outside of Seattle. People call it the Boeing Museum. It's not. As a matter of fact, we have been looking at a DC-3, the plane that made modern-day aviation possible. And we'll continue to talk about the Goonie Bird after a break.
Welcome back. We're at the Museum of Flight in Seattle looking at a Douglas DC-3, a plane that always amazed me, a plane that won the war. Isn't, isn't it pretty? There's just something to my mind absolutely gorgeous about the about the plane itself. I don't know what there is. It's just a pretty plane. Well, it's a marvelous aircraft, and, and I think it's... Its, uh, its birth is worth mentioning is how did it ever come about? Back in 1934, 35, 34, let me get my numbers straight. Uh, the Boeing Company uh, came out with a model called the 247. Boeing uses the, for the sevens a lot, the 247. And it was one of the first all-metal monocoque cantilever wing twin-engined aircraft a very practical very streamlined very much uh, at home in the appearance of the aircraft we see today uh, Boeing was flying that aircraft in on I might say their own airline back in those days Boeing was a consortium of Boeing aircraft company Hamilton Standard Propellers, Pratt & Whitney Engines, and United Airlines. Back to the back to the birth of the DC-3. Okay, back to the birth of the DC-3. The 247 was a remarkable, uh, innovative aircraft at that time, and everybody wanted to get their hands on it. TWA was flying an old, uh, oh, it was an old world, I believe it was a uh, Yonkers uh, uh, tri-motor, aircraft and uh, basically a wooden fabric aircraft that they had some problems with uh, in a thunderstorm in the Midwest. Is that uh, the Newt Rockney accident? Exactly. You're ahead of me on that. Sorry. No, no. No, no. You're right. The aircraft disintegrated and everybody was killed. Newt Rockney was a passenger. As you know, Newt Rockney was a role model for many, many children and adults at that time. And this was bad publicity for TWA. Correct? TWA shopped around to, to purchase new equipment to gain the confidence of passengers, and he came to Mr. Boeing, intending to buy the 247, but couldn't buy the 247 because all of the orders were, well, the aircraft were ordered up for a year and a half or more. And they needed to quickly get they, their good name back. They needed it now. TWA went to Donald Douglas and told him his problems and told him what he wanted. He wanted a tri-motored aircraft, and Douglas said, you don't want a tri-motored aircraft. Let me design you an aircraft that will do the job for you. And he designed what had became the DC-3. It really was. The first aircraft was a DC-1. The production line came out as a DC-2. American Airlines picked it up, and they changed or made a modification to call to uh, the aircraft to incorporate a, a sleeper, like a Pullman cars, if you remember the old Pullman cars on the railroad, uh, that became the DC-3. Then every production line, every production aircraft off the line that w after that was the DC-3, and it maintained that name throughout its history. I mentioned to Jim that I had heard that uh, at one time, to get across the U.S., you actually took a plane and then a train and then a plane and uh, kept alternating. The plane would fly during the day, and it would land at nightfall or at dusk. Uh, the passengers would board a train and, uh, and uh, 
get into their Pullman cars and sleep through the night. And at morning, they would stop at another point where another plane was waiting for them. They would leave the train, board the plane, and go on their way. Now, this must have been a very tedious trip, if you ask me. <laughs> How well, long I, it took to get across the States, I, I couldn't guess. I remember the first time I really flew alone. And it's only been in the past 15 or so years that I've really gotten the bug to fly. Yeah. I was with the Agriculture Department. I was taking short hops. I finally got to Denver. And from Denver, I had to go to Los Angeles. And I got on a Continental DC-10 with supper, eating a little steak, listening to classical music on the headphones, watching the sunset over the Rockies. And I thought, my God, I never want to leave this. It's wonderful, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, but those days are gone forever. You look at it now, we're like a bunch of, ch of, of, of chicken... Of, Cattle. Cattle, cattle, yes. Cattle. Someone told me recently that travel, the word travel used to mean a somewhat luxurious, exciting uh, 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 time in an aircraft. When now you, it's travail. <laughs> I heard a better one oh, now. Go ahead. <laughs> and that is that we don't travel, we're sent. <laughs> <laughs> like a package. That's right, exactly. You know, really, it's a truth. Yeah. I recently came back from Italy. I flew from from Rome to New York in a 747. And I would go on to say who it belonged to or anything. But it was one of the most miserable flights I ever had in my life. I was packed in there like a sardine. Really. <laughs> well, I try so hard to sit on the window for a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm so talkative. That's one fewer person I bore to death than if I'm sitting in the middle. I don't have someone on either side. I bring along maps and if, being a pilot, you know, aeronautical charts. Yeah. And I like to plot the trip because I'm a geography nut. I find it goes that and the crossword puzzles are the way I tolerate aircraft. Yeah, but that's tough because they're usually flying at such a high altitude, you, you can't see what's going on under there. Yeah, but if, the if, if we, when, when we come out of the clouds, though, I, I have my protractor and my stopwatch, and I pretty well kind of know where we are. <laughs> okay, all right. You're doing, you're doing dead reckoning navigation, aren't you? <laughs> there, there's a, a great book, and I'm sure you've read it, that Ernest Gans wrote, Fate is the Hunter, in yes, which he yes. outlines uh, his flying with American, I think, in the 30s and 40s, and it amazed me in reading it how in the days before radar and global positioning satellites these guys sometimes didn't know where they were and they had a mountain range coming up you know it, it was just frightening to read some of the things he wrote of course but you gotta remember that the aviation was in its infancy then when, when we started flying cross-country maps were not standardized maps usually were road maps that the, that the pilots picked up from the the local garage or the local oil station and they were published for Pennsylvania had one with a different scale than West Virginia or Ohio or New York so in other words an inch on the map in one state didn't mean the same as an inch in the next state absolutely absolutely and one map might show high elevations and another map might might exaggerate or neglect to show elevations so it was kind of a hit or miss situation and then the problem was really magnified when we got into bad weather or when the pilot got into bad weather. As long as he was flying visually and had visual reference to the ground, he usually didn't have a problem. Usually, all right? Where he got into problems is when he lost sight of the ground. Now he has to fly in, in what we called a dead reckoning, as you do when you're flying. You estimate the time from from a, a, a certain point, and you're estimating your mile. I mean, your your speed, speed and then it should give you an estimated time of arrival, and that's what the, the pilots had to had to use to navigate back in those days. And yes, they did. They did frequently lose their their way. Uh, as far as 
radio navigation. The pilots flew the old, you, you probably have heard the, the expression of flying the beam on the beam. Well, the beam was nothing more than a radio transmission that actually did send out a hum. A hum, a solid carrier. And it, when the pilot would uh, deviate from the beam, he would either get, in Morse code, an A or an N. Dit, da for an A, da, dit for an N, all right? So now, as I'm on the beam, I'm getting this hum, and I'm hearing it increase in volume as I get to my destination. If I drifted to one side, I'd get a dit, da, dit, da, and I knew that I had gone right. Or I would get the other side and I'd go, da, dit, da, dit, and knew I had gone left, and I would sneak back and get on this. And this, you know, this was trying. And then this was low frequency, and if there were thunderstorms or anything in the area, the static would drown all this stuff But out. yet you had to listen. I mean, weren't you deafened by the time you got to where you were going? And what'd you say? What'd you say? <laughs> we are the guests of the Museum of Flight, located just south of Seattle, Washington, near the big Boeing takeoff and runway test field in that area. And our host is Jim Mellon, a fellow who lived out his childhood dreams by becoming an Air Force pilot in the Second World War and then continued to fly. And now he is sharing his love of aircraft with others as a guide at the Museum of Flight. We walk to another part of the sprawling museum, and there hanging from the ceiling is one of the most startling-looking planes ever built. It is the Blackbird, they call it, that high-speed reconnaissance plane. But the model there had an extra added attraction on top, a small little drone, if you will. And Jim Mellon tells me that that was one of the early models that, well, never really panned out in its development. The beginning of the system was called the A-12. And this came out uh, on the drawing boards in uh, 19, uh, oh, I would say 1959 or 1960, right about that time. And it came about as a result of uh, inadequacy of the U-2. Now, you remember the U-2? The old Francis Gary Powers incident? Yes. Gary Powers incidents, that's right. The government recognized that the U-2 has, was reaching its, its limits. In other words, the technology was reaching the point that it could get to the U-2. Let me, for young people, explain the U-2 was a spy plane. Absolutely. It flew very high and very fast, trying to elude radar, but yet modern-day radar was catching up with it. One day, the Soviets shot one down. The pilot survived. We claim there hadn't been a spy flight. Right. It was very embarrassing. It was extremely embarrassing. That was during the uh, Eisenhower, Khrushchev, yes. Eisenhower administration and Khrushchev. More from the Museum of Flight in Seattle after this. Welcome back. We're talking to one of the chief guides of the Museum of Flight outside of Seattle. People think that it is a Boeing museum. It's not. It's about all aircraft. And the guide and I were looking at something that was kind of the result of the U-2 incident. And that's an amazing new advance. Well, new 30 years ago. New advance in weapons technology and reconnaissance. This aircraft here, with a, a, a remote-controlled drone mounted between the vertical stabilizers. You see that on top of the aircraft? Yes. That's a remote-controlled drone that carries the uh, sufficient uh, intelligence-gathering equipment. Now, the scenario for use of this aircraft was to fly the aircraft to the boundary of the country to be 
reconnoitered or whatever word we want to use there. Spied upon. Spied upon is a good (laughs) word. All right. Spied upon. They would launch the drone, and the drone would take off and fly a prescribed course, doing whatever it was supposed to do, taking pictures or listening or whatever, and then it would rendezvous with this aircraft and another aircraft, a Lockheed C-130 Hercules. And this Hercules was equipped with in-flight retrieval gear that had been used in the Pacific to pick up stuff from the space program that came down on chutes. They would jettison the package out of the the uh, drone, uh, the intelligence package. The package would come down on a chute. The Hercules would scoop this dude up, take it on board, and then they destroyed the drone because there was no way of recovering it. It had an explosive charge in it, and bam, they destroyed it. Now, this, this then made good Eisenhower's promise to Khrushchev when he said, never again will a manned aircraft fly over your country. How about that? How about that for sneakiness? <laughs> this this little thing on top of the drone you're talking about is yeah. is very much out of Star Wars, where they have those pods that they can release from the mothership and go out. Oh, yeah, isn't it's it? It's really high tech. Yeah, it's a it's a, a ramjet engine. It uh, requires uh, uh, supersonic speed to get the uh, the engine ignited, and then they launch it from from this. Now, there were only two of these guys made, two of them. You're looking at one. The other one has, has been lost because when they launched the drone, it came back into the mothership, broke its back, and we lost that aircraft the whole bit. Uh, one of the pilots didn't survive that, one of the occupants of the, of the uh, mothership. And as a result, I think the, the realization that it was extremely risky, extremely risky and uh, uh, very expensive, and technically it was rather difficult to achieve probably look good on paper. Absolutely. And then subsequent aircraft were manufactured. They called the SR-71s. They were all painted black because the aircraft attains a skin temperature of somewhere near 800 degrees at at, uh, the tremendous speeds that it flies. A marvelous airplane. We're here with Jim Mellon at the Museum of Flight in Seattle, right near the Boeing facility. And as we said at the beginning, a lot of people think it's the Boeing Museum. It's not. Jim, from our vantage point here in the center, there's a whole display labeled Apollo, which I presume takes us into the era of space. It does. And that starts back in 1969. It'll give you a chronological view of the Apollo space program. Remember now, 1969, we put two men on the moon right? Then subsequently, there were five other flights that landed on the moon for a total now of 12 men that have actually walked on the moon through the Apollo program. So if you wander through that, that starts you off with a view of the Apollo capsule, showing the three men and how tight they're they're squeezed into this little capsule. And then the uh, the achievements that they had uh, walking on the moon and then subsequent flights that uh, used a, a moon uh, buggy remember they had this oh, little yeah, thing yeah the big they, wire wheels yeah and there's one sitting over on the corner there you see you can see what that looks like uh, and that would give you a little bit of history of those years and basically that's what you see there and there's a plane I want to talk about and we're going to have to sure. get up and walk to the other side Let's and that. and that is one of the planes that was an Air Force One oh. uh, during during the era, I presume first starting with Eisenhower, it is, if I'm not mistaken, technically a 707. It is technically, technically a 707, you're right. I hate to keep interrupting myself, but here on the left is 
a beautiful example. There's a large photograph here of a plane with four engines, a very high wing, almost a jelly bean looking fuselage, no landing gear designed to land on water. Can, can you explain for today's audience, knowing that we take these two-mile runways for granted, why there were so many of these clipper ships and these water landing planes? Well, that's pretty simple. There were no runways. <laughs> Remember, this was back in the 30s. And this is a Boeing Model 314, or more commonly known as the China Clippers, the, flown by the Pan American Airlines. Pan American was the, the pioneers of flying uh, the Pacific routes, and this guy was used from flying San Francisco to uh, Hawaii to uh, to Japan to Australia to New Zealand and uh, the uh, Philippines, the Outer Islands. Well, if you ever had to set down, as long as the seas weren't too rough, you could almost go down anywhere if you had oh, yeah. to. Well, that was that was the secret behind it. People were very apprehensive about flying a land-based aircraft out over the ocean. They didn't like this at all. So the manufacturers solved the problem by building the aircraft on a boat hull. Giving the folks, what I would say, a false sense of security <laughs> because if the, engine, I mean, if the ocean was rough, they wouldn't last too long. Forget it. No. Yeah, forget it. Was it the fellow's name Juan Tripp, who Juan was president Tripp. of Pan Am? He certainly. He was the pioneer of that whole area. I know there's a marker in Key West, Florida that says this is the birthplace of Pan Am. It was flying from, from Key West to Havana. Originally. That's right. That's yeah. right. You're absolutely right. And you know, it's sad when you stop to realize that Pan Am is gone. Oh, Which kind my. of back, but in name only. Well, <laughs> in but, name but, but only. You're yeah. right. I, I remember we, we talked about the book <coughs> Fate is the Hunter. Uh, uh, the, the author saying that if you flew for Pan Am, yeah. that was top drawer. When, when they saw the Pan Am pilots in their starched uniforms and, and the stewardesses, that, that was, everyone else was below Pan Am. They were stewards in those days. Stewards. There were no stewardesses among, among the crew of the, uh, the Clippers. Ah, they were a, 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 a macho group in those days, believe me. I'll tell you something. It's, it's unfortunate how we as passengers have relegated the flight attendants from their original role to be there for our safety. Some of the originals had to be nurses, I think, or you wouldn't, you wouldn't be accepted uh, as a stewardess to now we, we look at them as waiters and waitresses, I'm afraid. I know it. And it's too bad, but you're right, they were nurses. And, and, and that all happened with the, uh, with the uh, Bo Boeing Model 80 that we talked about. Or did I mention that earlier? Yes, that was the first one, you said. Yeah, and yeah. it was the first one to have the stewardesses on board. Jim Mellon, our guide to the Museum of Flight in Seattle, suggested we go outside because parked there was one of the three Boeing 707s delivered to the White House that became known as Air Force One. We stood there, and as he began to describe that plane from the late 1950s, one of the newest Boeing planes landed. This aircraft came about as a, uh, as a replacement of the presidential oh, let's aircraft. hold on a second. Here's the 777 oh, landing. Right. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? Oh. That's the new 777. Look at that. Watch it. Now that is a high-capacity, wide-body plane with only two engines, That's which is right. a testament to how much thrust they're getting oh. out of two jets now. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Here I'm going into reverse thrust down there. Can you think of any other occupation that you could have gotten into that would have afforded you the career you had, and now in your retirement years, being able to stay with the love I can see in your eyes of all of this? <laughs> and can you get me a job here? <laughs> it's not a job. I told I know, you. You're a volunteer. I'm sorry. <laughs> can you get me an assignment here? How's that? 
Of course we can. You'd be, you'd be a great docent here, believe me. No, I, that's, that's a good question. I, I, I honestly have to say that, that flying was my only love. It was the only thing I ever really wanted to do, and I have achieved that. And, uh, and I only regret that I can't do it all over again. <laughs> well, you look at the looks in some of these young people around here, and many of these young kids, well, adults too, have never been up close to an airplane. They've never looked up inside the wheel assembly. They've never been able to touch them. That's before. true, yeah. yeah. This is a wonderful place to be. It's the only museum that I know of. If you get tired of looking at the inanimate objects inside, you can come outside and watch a new 777's land. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you for asking me. What a thrill, the Museum of Flight, and also to see an early 777 fly in. That was nice. Welcome back. In our final segment, something a little bittersweet, some months ago, I ran an interview I did with the late Gus Stevens. Gus and I worked together at this radio station and on so many historical things. I had him on my national show and uh, we've gotten four email requests to bingo at earthlink.net to replay that. So here I am with Gus walking around and he talks about George Rogers Clark. Who else? Well, the main problem was that uh, the British were giving great pressure on the Kentucky settlements. And uh, the major settlements, uh, Kentucky being a part of Virginia at that time, uh, were uh, in Kentucky in the West. And it seemed that uh, uh, that the uh, that the British uh, uh, knew this. And they were uh, inciting the Indians to put great pressure on those Kentucky settlements. And Patrick Henry, who was governor of Virginia, uh, decided at the time that he had to do something to protect the settlers in Kentucky. He was more interested in that than he was this vast, what he called a wasteland, uh, north of the Ohio River, which we know of today as the, as the old Northwest Territory. And uh, uh, his man of the time was George Rogers Clark. He talked to Clark. Clark agreed to come out, and uh, uh, Clark was able to put together an army of sorts in uh, Pittsburgh. He went down to Corn Island, which is uh, uh, just off the present-day city of uh, Louisville. It's underwater now. Uh, his army, they sailed down the, uh, the Ohio, up the Mississippi to uh, capture Kaskaskia and Cahokia. Uh, both of those uh, uh, battles were not really battles at all. They were takeovers. And... Uh, you know, Back in those days, uh, troops on both sides tended to winter at, in, in the wintertime and tended to go into a bivouac situation. Almost kind of a hibernation. Exactly. And uh, uh, Clark felt that uh, his one chance of capturing uh, the British here at, uh, at Fort Sackville in Vincennes was uh, to be able to uh, uh, surprise him to surprise uh, Henry Hamilton, the, uh, uh, the, the man in charge. And uh, he did this by crossing the Illinois country from Kaskaskia all the way across southern Illinois. Uh, they walked. The uh, rivers were out of their banks. It was a flooded time of year for uh, uh, the Little Wabash and the Wabash and all the uh, various uh, tributaries that flow into them. And so uh, a good bit of the uh, uh, march was in water. And the last 10 miles of the march was in water up to the waist and chest. 
and uh, Clark did surprise the British here at uh, at uh, Vincennes. He did capture uh, Fort Sackville after uh, a short battle of uh, of about a day and a half, and uh, the formal surrender uh, took place on February the 25th, 1779. And if there are any stamp collectors in the audience, uh, uh, Dennis, they might remember the 1929 two-cent postage stamp, which had the surrender of Fort Sackville with George Rogers Clark receiving Henry Hamilton's sword. Is it an overstatement, though, to say that even though the intent was to free up the Kentucky area from harassment by the British, that actually psychologically this was very important when the country was moving to the west that after the revolutionary war was over that we at least had a foot in the door out yes. here oh yes uh, the implications of what clark did out on the frontier uh, became magnified many many times it uh, it uh, far out uh, outranked uh, just protecting the settlers in kentucky and at the treaty of paris of uh, uh, 1783 why this was taken into consideration uh, truthfully uh, uh, this area would have been uh, a real contention of whether the British were willing to give it up or not had not uh, uh, Clark already has established himself in the in the territory. We had mentioned earlier the influence of the French originally on this area. If you look at a map of the county, which is Knox County, which is a very British-sounding name, the roads run at a 45-degree angle. The city of Vincennes, partially because of the angle of the river here, is much at a 45-degree angle, which, which is very much in the tradition of the way French built things. We also have some interesting uh, French surveys in this area, and uh, which later developed into the, uh, the Vincennes donation lands. And uh, actually... Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson, or actually Albert Gallatin, through uh, uh, Jefferson's orders, uh, established a commission out here on the frontier just to straighten out the uh, donation lands and to find out who owned what. He sent uh, uh, two people out, uh, Nathaniel Ewing and uh, Gallatin's very close friend, John Badalet, or Badalet, who was uh, uh, not a Frenchman, but he was a Genevan. Uh, in fact, he and Gallatin had both come from Geneva in present-day uh, Switzerland, so he had a friend that he could trust out on the frontier. And over a period of four or five years, they were able to straighten out these uh, uh, kind of crazy land surveys. Gus and I have been walking around, and I continue my conversation with him. Let's talk about uh, probably Vincennes' best-known native son. Maybe not to the younger generation today, but we're not too far from the corner of Fifth and Main. And there's an old theater there called the Pantheon, which is now used as office space. This fellow, whose name I'm not going to say yet, I interviewed him one time, and he told the story. He was selling newspapers out in front of the Pantheon at Fifth and Main, was 10 years old. And he went in and uh, he noticed that a comedian from New York was playing and he went back out and this fellow came in from out of town and said to him what do you do for excitement and the young newspaper boy says well there's a really funny guy from New York is going to be here I'd really like to see him but I don't have the money and the young boy now old tells the story that the visitor bought all of his newspapers and gave him the money and he went in and recognized that the fellow who had bought his newspapers was Ed Wynn. That's right. And that man was Red Skelton. That's right. And that's the Red Skelton, uh, that's one of the more famous Red Skelton stories. Red Skelton was born here in Vincennes and grew up here in Vincennes. At a very young age, he, uh, uh, he was involved with uh, a number of uh, Midwestern acts, including uh, Clarence Stout's Minstrels. Uh, uh, he was with Medicine Shows. Uh, his success uh, speaks for itself. He's probably America's favorite clown and uh, Vincennes is very proud of him 
And uh, our teachers in Vincennes uh, use the resource of the people who are available, uh, even the old guys like you and I, uh, to come into the classroom and talk to the students and, and not so much tell them but to answer the questions they might have about uh, their community and what they perceive their community to be. And, uh, and I think that uh, this little old town of Vincennes does as good a job of that as, as any town I've ever heard of, of, of trying to interface the their young people uh, with uh, the, the people who live in the community. Isn't there a really good argument you can make economically for the importance of it? I mean, this, this monument here, the tourism, draws a lot of money to this city. Millions. Uh, it is amazing. And the people who do that the best are the National Park Service. Uh, uh, they know uh, what kind of crowds they're getting. And uh, uh, I, I think, and the Chamber of Commerce, of course, works at it too, but uh, but we do have some measuring sticks, and we know what uh, what value it is. And I think one of the things that uh, that these people have done in this community, they have been able to, to cause a, a stable existence to take place in the historical community. Uh, it's a class act. Uh, we, we've tried to be accurate when depicting our history. Uh, we, have, uh, we have tried not to be outlandish in some of the things we say about our history. And, uh, and I think that we have uh, earned the respect of people who come in who say, isn't that interesting? And what's more interesting is that that's exactly the way it happened. One final thing. What kind of reaction have you seen, particularly from young students? You work with them in the schools. You've been out here a lot. Your son was a park ranger for a year. I'm sure you spent time with him. There's the historical center. There is so much crowded into a four or five block area. When the light bulb comes on and a grade school student begins to realize that, hey, there used to be boats up and down here. This was the main highway. There was no bridge. You had to use a ferry. All of this is to remember the past. What kind of comments do you get? We get a lot of comments like that. And at the Historical Library at Vincennes, we get a lot of Vincennes University students who are doing English themes and, and themes for their history classes. And uh, they find this resource that we have in, in this community. And so, um, uh, and, and also they, when they go back into their own communities, they try to relate that to their own communities and say, well, how does my uh, community uh, compare to, uh, uh, to the community of Vincennes? Uh, I had one student some years ago, and I said, uh, where are you from? And he told me, and I said, what kind of town is that? He said, it's just like Vincennes without the monuments. <laughs> <laughs> Gus Stevens, uh, thanks a lot for a very long-term friendship. And uh, you have one more thing you want to add? I have one more thing to say. There's one man we haven't really thanked. And uh, that's a man by the name of Paul Dresser who wrote a song about this river in 1900 called On the Banks of the Wabash, Far Away. Thank you, Paul. You've helped us a lot. <laughs> Gus Stevens of Vincennes University, thanks a lot. Oh, thank you, Dennis. Nice to be with you. Hey, this was a fun show. We ended up with a special request uh, to my email, bingo, B-I-N-G-O, at earthlink.net, bingo at earthlink.net, to replay part of that interview we did with the wonderful late Gus Stevens. A good friend of mine, I met Gus when he was helping us at WAOV, and then stayed good friends, and of course we lost him a couple of years ago. But uh, what a neat guy with a great voice. And before that, up to Seattle, the Museum of Flight. Everyone thought it was a Boeing museum, but it isn't. It's the Museum of Flight. Hey, I don't even know where we're going next week, but if you're not here, I am going to be downright disappointed. 